few people played as decisive a role in the creation of the Paris Agreement as today's guest. Cristiana Figueroa served as Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and was one of the architects behind the Paris Agreement. Today I talked to her about the importance of the agreement and what we can learn moving ahead. Failure was not an option. We had to reach a global agreement and no one knew exactly how that would happen. But uh, but we all knew that it had to happen. So we changed our mentality from uh, assuming that something was impossible to the determination of together we're going to make it possible. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today, I speak with Christiana Figueredas, the former executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. During her tenure as head of the UNFCCC from 2010 to 2016, Ms. Figueredas played a crucial role in the creation of the Paris Agreement. Even though it's been four years since she left the UN, Figueres remains one of the most important voices in the global environmental debate. In 2017, she co-founded Global Optimism, a group focused on social and environmental change. A few months ago, she co-authored the book, The Future We Choose. Hello, Christiana. Good to see you. Good to see you. So, Christiana, you were one of the, the architects and the leaders behind the Paris Agreement. Could you maybe uh, start by saying a few words about the, the meaning of the Paris Agreement today? Uh, how, how has it been implemented and how do you see the prospects for, for it actually making a real difference? So I tend to view the um, Paris Agreement as many things, but for the purpose of this conversation, I would call it a pretty, not a perfect, but a pretty good global business plan for um, for global decarbonization with a very clear target, which is decarbonization of the global economy by 2050, with a very clear set of um, stops along the way to monitor where we are, basically checkpoints every five years from 2015 to 2050. There will be checks along the way to see where we are and to invite governments to increase the ambition over what they had registered before. Um, And with a very clear starting line. So walking it back, it's a business plan with a clear target, with checkpoints along the way, and with the starting line, which was what every single country registered under the Paris Agreement in 2015. So the Paris Agreement is not the sum total of what was registered the first time around in 2015. 
The Paris Agreement is a process, is a multi-decadal process, and needs to be implemented in a timely fashion. Timing is probably the most important factor in the, in the climate agreement and certainly in climate change. Because contrary to many other issues that we have, um, poverty, um, malnutrition, lack of education for girls and women, contrary to all of those challenges that are equally unacceptable, there is a ticking bomb in climate that means that if we get to a certain point, it will become completely irreversible. That is not true of all of the other social issues and, uh, and even economic issues that we are working on. So timing is the most sensitive part of the Paris Agreement and certainly of dealing with climate change. And that, of course, also connects to the target of keeping the temperature increase below 1.5 degrees. Yeah. I mean, even temperature increases below that will have severe consequences. But one of the reasons, of course, why it's important to keep below 1.5 or, or 2 degrees is that after that, this is when the risks of these self-enhancing effects really gets uh, gets out of hand. Can you maybe talk to uh, to us a little bit about the negotiations that led up to to uh, to the Paris Agreement. Now, of course, the failure in, in Copenhagen, COP15, uh, led to sort of a crisis in, in the international community. But in a way, that also then sparked the process that you led that ended up in, in the Paris Agreement. And one of the things that were decided was try and stay below 1.5, or rather we should stay below 1.5, the legally binding aspect of, of all of this, something that had been seen as being impossible to achieve on international level just a few years before. So what was it that made it possible? What was your strategy? Um, well, I, I would say many things made it possible um, to have, a, as you point out, a very marked difference between 2009 and 2015. Um, one, of course, was the fact that we had economics on our side and the cost for renewable energies fell quite dramatically after 2009, meaning that the solutions were much more accessible and could be more easily invested in. The second piece that was uh, remarkably different was geopolitics, because uh, we, toward the end of uh, the process toward the Paris Agreement, we had a President Obama in his second term. Uh, first term was much more difficult for him, but we had a President Obama in his second term reaching out very, very consciously and with a lot of determination out to uh, President Xi Jinping in China and establishing very close bilateral uh, agreements on how they were both going to collaborate on climate change. And that, of course, set the example for other countries to move from confrontation to collaboration. Um, but thirdly, I must say, um, underlying all of that, and uh, I, I certainly without the economics on our side and the geopolitics on our side, uh, we would not have been able to reach as ambitious an agreement as we did. But in addition to that, we had a very marked change of attitude. All of us survivors of Copenhagen, all of us who were there, and I don't know if you were there personally. I was. Um, but all you were. So, so you know, you were part of the painful situation where 
nobody knew what to do. We were all helpless. It was really quite, uh, quite chaotic um, with 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 no single responsibility um, for the chaos anywhere, but everyone basically contributing to that. Um, and uh, as survivors of Copenhagen, um, you will remember that the global mood on climate at the beginning of 2010 was dire. It was in the trash can, I would say. Uh, no one ever believed that we would ever be able to reach a global agreement. No one. Everyone was arguing. I guess you can even say a lot of a lot of people, even in the green community, green NGOs, were arguing. Well, maybe the COP process is just dead now. Exactly, exactly. And people were arguing it's too expensive, it's too complicated, too many countries. Uh, you can't trust them. Too much confrontation. On and on and on and on. Um, well, what was I think the one determining factor between 2010 and 2015 was a change of attitude. Because um, I think it's very clear that if you and I say, well, you know, we're going to um, run a marathon, but actually you think it's going to be impossible to run the marathon, you probably won't be able to run it. If you say, I'm going to run a marathon and you have a positive attitude toward it, you say, that's going to be difficult because I'm not in shape. I'm not eating right. I'm not taking the time to exercise and to train. I don't have a coach. Um, all of those difficulties are there, but I'm going to set my mind to it and I'm going to do everything that is necessary to be able to reach my target. Well, once we had changed our attitude, and it first started actually not even with governments, it started first internally in the secretariat and with stakeholders, and then over time per, per also with government representatives to understand that actually we just couldn't afford to fail. Failure was not an option. We had to reach a global agreement and no one knew exactly how that would happen, but, uh, but we all knew that it had to happen. So we changed our mentality from uh, assuming that something was impossible to the determination of together we're going to make it possible. Yes, and now of course we are we are approaching uh, the time for a stock take where countries across the globe are to uh, to make new promises, to set new goals, new NDCs as it's as it's called. And unfortunately, the COP26 that was supposed to be held in in Glasgow this November has had to be postponed. But this doesn't mean that level of ambition doesn't need to be uh, taken to a, to a new level this year, because of course the Paris Agreement really dictates that. This year is the year where countries uh, should submit their new uh, national targets. What is your evaluation of, of that process? Obviously, we, we, we all understand how difficult it is for countries across the globe in, this, uh, in the middle of this unprecedented health crisis to actually do this. What is your evaluation of that situation? Well, you know, in the beginning when um, the, it was being considered to delay COP26, I was not supportive of that idea of delay because I have always believed that timelines are helpful to um, accelerate processes. But I'm delighted to say I was wrong uh, because I now am of the opinion that the delay was very helpful. And it was helpful because no one knew uh, how deep the economic crisis uh, was going to go after the health crisis. But what we do know now is that there are a series of economic recovery packages that are being designed and deployed around the world um, to kickstart the economy again. 
And those economic recovery packages are currently uh, to the tune of $12 trillion, going possibly up to $20 trillion. Never has the global economy received such an input of fresh cash. And what we know is that wherever those recovery packages go, depending on what companies they go to and under what conditions, what sectors they go to and under what conditions, those recovery packages will to be and they will be deployed over the next three to 18 months. And those recovery packages will determine the carbon intensity of the global economy, not for 18 months, but at least for a decade, if not longer. And we also know that it is exactly that decade when we have to cut our emissions by one half. So actually, Minister, it turns out to be a good thing because we will be looking at these packages and the European Union has already taken a leadership in these green recovery packages. And that will help countries to be more ambitious on climate by next year. Well, I I, I actually agree with you. And I guess you can say that one of the main differences between now and 2009 uh, with the failure in Copenhagen is that in Copenhagen, we were also in the middle of an economic global crisis, but the stimulus packages and policies that was adopted across the, the planet went in the wrong direction. It actually supported old-fashioned uh, fossil-intensive technologies. And and hopefully, and I agree with you, it looks like that will be different this time. So, so maybe that's one of the criteria that you mentioned needed to be fulfilled for success that will be fulfilled. But the first one you mentioned was a very strong U.S.-China access and collaboration. Can you talk to us maybe a little bit about the prospects then? Of course, also then the in that connection, the importance of the election in in the U.S. in November. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, pretty obvious that the election of the United States is a, a historic event. It will determine geopolitics for decades to come, um, and it will certainly determine how quickly we can move on climate. Now, over the past four years, it has been impressive to see how the U.S. economy has been decarbonizing despite the White House position, just because the large states on the East Coast and the West Coast and the large corporations in the United States understand that decarbonization is actually good for them, so they have continued to decarbonize. But four more years of deregulation on climate would be uh, very difficult for the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. economy, and four more years of not participating uh, would make it very difficult for other countries to continue um, in their in their processes. So um, a lot is riding on the U.S. election, but I should say not just on climate, on many other issues. Now, assuming that there is no re-election, but that we don't know, 50-50 chance at the at the at the moment. Assuming that there's no re-election, there is a huge opportunity for the United States to dovetail back in to the Paris Agreement very quickly with executive order and um, to begin to roll back the deregulations, so to put the regulations back in place that will incentivize the U.S. economy to continue its decarbonization process internally. But also it will have um, important international ramifications because, of course, everyone is waiting to see if, uh, if the United States is going to re-engage. And the most important partner there is China. I would say China right now is uh, waiting for Godot. And uh, Godot is the election. 
and waiting to see if uh, if they can re-engage on uh, on climate the way that they um, had done so before. In the meantime, they continue to invest more into solar than any other country, more into wind than any other country, more into electric vehicles than any other country, and more into infra and um, into electric vehicle charging infrastructure than any other country. So it's not that they are completely stopped in their process, but they can do so much more if they do it in collaboration. So with your experience uh, from the, the process leading up to the Paris Agreement, what would be your best advice to countries like my own? Uh, how do we keep the momentum and, and, and risk, apart from the fact, of course, that we need to look at green stimulus of our economies, how do we, politically speaking, keep the momentum? Well, um, I would say at this point, thank God for the European Union. <laughs> thank God uh, that the European Union and all of the um, all of the members of individually, all the members of the European Union, including Denmark, um, is continuing to to be responsible and to understand, frankly, that this is a huge opportunity. What what, what I do not comprehend is why we're still stuck in a victim mentality in a paying the punishment mentality, assuming that decarbonizing is only um, a cost. Yes, it is an investment, but with huge returns, with huge returns. And frankly, if we see it as a dramatic invitation to modernize all our systems, to modernize transport, to modernize electric generation, electric um, transport and distribution, to bring our soils back into into their regenerated state. It's a huge invitation to be a much better, regenerated, fertile, healthy, stable world. That's what this is all about. It is not a burden. It is not a punishment that we're paying for past sins. There is so much opportunity here to be had that I don't honestly understand why we're not galloping toward this opportunity. Well, I totally agree. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask you now, I'm not a journalist, so I'm allowed to do this. I can ask you what's called a leading question. Because right now, as you know, we're negotiating in, in Europe whether or not to enhance our 2030 targets. Now, from the Danish perspective, it's it's a no-brainer. Of course, we need to do that. We have pledged 70% reduction in 2030 compared to 1990. And now we're fighting for the EU also to move from the 40%, that's the target now, to at least 55 And here Correct. comes the leading question. Will that help the process if we succeed? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But can you maybe elaborate a little bit? Because maybe it is difficult for, let's say, my Polish colleague or Romanian colleague that say, well, for us, it's actually quite difficult. We are still dependent on coal. We need to transform our economies. But it's it, it needs we cannot take the decisions that you are asking before we know whether or not China and others will will follow. So please uh, help me uh, build my uh, argumentation towards them. Your case. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Certainly from an international perspective, we do need leadership because we need role modeling. We need to understand how is this done? The world has never done this. So it's not that from a moral perspective, someone has to lead and the others have to follow. No, it's not about morality. It's about taking the leadership and figuring out how, because we all know we have to do it. But someone has got to have 
the vision and the technology and the political determination to step up to the plate and say, yes, we all know that we have to do this, never been done before, let's figure this out together and really begin to move into new ground. So that, so that is the role that the European Union is playing. Now, from a Polish perspective, and you said you're friends in Poland and where else? I think it's it's fair to say that there's a few, especially Eastern European countries, and they have their own legitimate reasons for arguing the way they do. But sure. nonetheless, it's fair to say that we do have a conflict internally in Europe yes. on how ambitious we we need to be. Yes. And, you know, honestly, I actually, um, I, I hope you're not going to turn the microphone off of me when I say I think it's helpful to have those dissident voices in the European Union because it forces the European Union to tackle with a very different reality um, than the northern countries. And I think the reality of Eastern Europe is a, a reality that is more similar to many other countries than the reality in Northern Europe. So from that perspective, um, you know, I would I, I welcome the voices of Poland and Romania and, and the other Eastern European countries who, um, who who remind always the ambitious and very virtuous northern countries that there are some realities that really need addressing. So their reality of depending on coal is a legitimate argument, a very legitimate argument, toward which solutions have to be found. It is not fair to leave any country dependent on coal because it is the equivalent of leaving any country dependent on landline telephony when everybody else has moved over to cell phone or, you know, telling them, I'm sorry, you can't use the internet. And, you know, the internet of things is not going to be available to you. You have to do everything manually. I mean, it's just not fair to leave them dependent on coal because that is a stranded asset. Now, the important piece is what is the transition? And I think there, there are a couple of components that need to be looked at. The first and most important to me is the people that depend on the coal industry, the workers. They have to be given another option. And I think Spain has done a beautiful job in closing its coal, but employing the coal workers precisely in the process of closing coal plants. Because you don't close a coal, coal plant from Sunday to Monday. There is a whole process that has to be engaged in. And so they are engaging the coal miners in the process of closing the coal plants, which gives those people one or two years still of secure labor um, while they get ready for something else. So a just transition, especially to those who depend on that, uh, on those jobs is absolutely crucial. This Another component of course is have to accelerate all of the alternatives with respect to energy generation um, because you can't leave a country without energy generation. So to put in the conditions that make it more easily accessible for Eastern Europe to access the technologies of the 21st century. Because if we leave them in the coal world, we leave them in the 20th century, and that's not fair to them. We have to be able to bring them along into the 21st century. And, you know, like, like anyone else, if, if you say, well, you know, you have to move into this unknown territory, of course they're nervous about it. You and I would also be nervous about moving into any unknown territory. Um, so that's understandable. But there are countries there that can support 
and can help. UK is a fantastic example of having moved away from coal, um, being the bedrock of the Industrial Revolution. Um, today, the UK has moved from 45 dependence on coal to 4% dependence on coal. Very interesting. What can the European Union learn from the UK in that process? Um, and so I think it's a matter of um, not chastising the Eastern Europeans, um, but rather to understand that um, their reality is quite different and that they have a very important learning role for all of us. And I think also it's we need to maybe coin this a little bit differently so that we talk about modernizing our economies, making them more competitive also for the future so that it's not so much about asking countries to sacrifice something. It's more asking them or helping each other to modernize. In, in Denmark, of course, we have the examples of our offshore wind industry that now in the harbor of the city Esbjerg, for instance, that I visited recently, we have many of the same people that used to work in the offshore oil industry that are now working, the same people in the offshore wind industry. Exactly. And, and this is... A good example of what we can do now, of course. I, a very good example. I know that you uh, that you're very busy, so I'll I'll, I'll just ask you this uh, last question because you are somewhat of an expert also on uh, some of the nature-based solutions that we need to to look at. Can you uh, can you talk maybe a little bit on that? Yes, I think um, you know the time has come to look at this very seriously. Unfortunately, all of these nature-based solutions sort of fell into disrepute over some years. Um, But uh, but we have gotten over those uh, those issues that were plaguing those solutions. And we now understand that we have to both modernize energy and regenerate the land. We have to do both. They can't come. You know, you can't choose between one or the other. We have to do both. Um, and actually, um, there are so many benefits that come from regenerating soils that are way beyond climate change. Um, it is protecting aquifers, it is stabilizing the, the local um, ecosystem, it is protecting the richness of the soils, it is giving income to the people that live around there, um, it is protecting the habitat and the biodiversity that lives around there. There's so many benefits from it. So I, you know, for me, that piece, what it really needs still is a business model that surrounds it that is equally as compelling as the investment into renewable energy. We just don't have a business model that takes in all of the nature-based solutions. And I think that's the next place. I, th I think that yeah, I think you're right. And I think also we need a more holistic approach because take, for instance, uh, the restoration of peatland soil, which we're looking at in Denmark right now. If you If you look at that just from the perspective of climate change, it's efficient. It will reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, but it's quite expensive. On the other hand, if you look at it in my colleague, the Minister of Environment's uh, office, and she's uh, looking at how to restore biodiversity. Again, it's efficient, but it's quite expensive. Exactly. If you look at it combined, maybe it's a, actually a quite cost-effective way of getting both uh, both things. And I think this goes for many of the nature-based uh, solutions. That's very true. Well, on that note, thank you so much for, for joining me uh, in this conversation. It's been extremely interesting. But thank you very much for the invitation. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you. Bye. Bye. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. 
If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.